Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Our commitment should not be to a denomination, to a theology, to a church. Our commitment should be to finding out what the Bible says and studying that. And I want to say to those of you that are, are committed to Calvinism or committed to Reformed theology, covenant theology, that, that we don't see this as a major issue. What we're going to talk about here in a minute doesn't talk about how we are saved because we all believe that we have to receive Jesus. It is heartbreaking when we know and love someone who has come to Christ, seemingly accepted Jesus into their lives, only to see them walk away from God. As sorrowful as that is, it ought to cause all of us to take a look at the commitment we made and examine if we have truly made a commitment to Jesus, not to a church, not to a feeling or a religious culture, but to the one true Son of God who is God, who loved us enough to die for us. With Hebrews chapter 2, here's Robert Furrow with some heartfelt warnings and encouragement. Father, we want to thank you so much for your word. It is rich, it is deep, it is profound, it is meaningful, especially here as we have begun our study of the book of Hebrews. We pray that you would give us insight into this chapter, that we'd be able to see exactly what the Holy Spirit was trying to get across to these people as he was writing it. And we pray now that you would be our teacher. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we come to the second chapter in the book of Hebrews, this is the first of the warnings that we find. There are six warnings in the book of Hebrews. This is the first of the six. And this is the problem that many people have with the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is, is not easy for anybody to cover. Part of it is because it was written to Hebrews, to people who were Jewish that had become Christians. They were creeping back into the law and so the writer of Hebrews wants to show them that Jesus is superior to everything. Don't leave Jesus to go back to a system because that's what the law was. The law wasn't bad. The law was good, but the law was weak in that it could not save them. However, these warnings create a specific problem for especially those who are involved in Reformed theology, those who are involved in Calvinism. And if you are here tonight or you're watching and you're Reformed, or your, your Calvinist, your five-point Calvinist, or, or an extreme Calvinist. I, I just want to say that we're going to talk about that some tonight, but we're not against Calvinism. We, I would consider myself to be more of a historicist. I wouldn't consider myself to be an Arminianist. Let me just kind of start with that, because on the spectrum of Calvinism and Arminian, so Calvinism, we'll, get, we'll talk about what Calvinism believes, but extreme Calvinism and extreme Arminianism there are all kinds of people along all of that spectrum. And people fall somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. And we like to paint people and put them in boxes. We like to say, you're an Arminianist, you're a Calvinist. And I don't think that's the way that the Bible works. I mean, I don't read about Calvinists or Arminianists in the Bible. It's a system of theology. And I'm just interested in what the Bible says. And if that puts me into one of your categories, that puts me into one of your categories. But the reason that someone who is a Calvinist will have a problem with this is because they believe that if you are chosen, you are chosen, and there's no way you could be lost. And so there's no reason to give you a warning. And so they find the warnings here in the book of Hebrews. And so here's what they say. They say that only part of the book of Hebrews is to be applied to Christians. 
that there are certain parts that are not. They are to be applied to those who are Jewish who are not yet Christians. And that's what the warnings are. So to them, the warnings are warnings to Jews who are Christians that they should become Christians. That's the warning. That's not the way they read, but that's what they say because to them it develops a problem. And they say the warnings are not for you who are Christians at all. There are even people who say that the book of Hebrews is a apocrypha book. They have so much trouble with it that they say it's not for Christians, it's not for the church at all. It's for Jews in the tribulation period. So when, when Jesus comes back for his church and you enter into the tribulation period and it's a time of Jacob's trouble and you find Israel in the tribulation period, they're saying that the Lord provided this book for them so that they would know that these warnings were very real to them. If they take the mark of the beast, then they're going to be lost. And so these warnings were very real to them and these weren't written to the church at all. And I find that to be really extreme. If you have to go to those measures to be able to justify your theology, then maybe it's time to adjust your theology to be a little bit more biblical and to know that our commitment should not be to a denomination, to a theology, to a church. Our commitment should be to finding out what the Bible says and studying that. And I want to say to those of you that are, are committed to Calvinism or committed to Reformed theology, covenant theology, that th we don't see this as a major issue. What we're going to talk about here in a minute doesn't talk about how we are saved because we all believe that we have to receive Jesus, that we have to commit our lives to him and be transformed and be born again. It's just who can be born again that's the question. So this is not an issue of Although some people in Calvinism will say those who don't believe in Calvinism are not saved, and some people will look back at Calvinists and say that they're not saved, it's not a salvation issue. It's a secondary issue. And so we can all be friends, right? We can all be nice and we can all be friends. So let's first of all consider these warnings. So there are six warnings. We covered them in the very first study, but I just want to cover what these six warnings are, and I want you to get some of the, the extreme language in these warnings that causes the problem. The first warning is against drifting. We're going to be talking about that today. It says, it's in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. It says in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The second warning is in departing from the faith. It says, it's in uh, Hebrews 3, 12 through 15, and it says, and I'm not going to read you the whole warning. I just want to give you a sense of how severe these warnings are. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you a heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So literally it says to beware. And notice it's beware, brethren, lest there be in you any heart that would be unbelieving or departing from the living God. The third warning is a warning of disobedience. Like the children of Israel were disobedient to God. We don't want to be disobedient to him. This is in Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. And it says, let us therefore be diligent to enter his rest, lest any fall according to the same example of disobedience. The fourth warning is against a dullness of heart. And it's in Hebrews 6, 1 through 6. And it says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance to dead works towards God and baptism and laying on hands and the resurrection of the dead for eternal judgment. It says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, and then it goes on to say, to renew them to repentance. Again, that's a serious warning. The fifth warning is in Hebrews 10, 26 through 31, and it says, 
if we sin willfully, this is a scary one, if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. When I read that, I can understand why people would want to go, that's not for us. That's for somebody else. And then the sixth warning is against defying the living God. And it says, it's in Hebrews 12, verses 25 through 29. And it says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they do not escape who refuse him who spoke on earth, meaning the law, how much shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? And, and it goes on to talk about defying, that there is no escape if we are defying the very things of God. Now, let's take a moment to talk about what Calvinism believes. This is just the basic Calvinism doctrine. And I want to always be really careful when I'm representing a view that I don't hold 100%, that I'm not building a straw man, because that's done a lot. People build a straw man, then they tear down a straw man. And that doesn't help anybody, because when you find out that your pastor misrepresented a position, it causes you to not trust in what he's saying. So there's an acronym that helps to understand Calvinism. Calvinism, of course, John Calvin didn't really come up with Calvinism. John Calvinism taught what he taught, and then people later on came up with what they called Calvinism. And they came up with TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, for the five points of Calvinism. Now understand, there are four-point Calvinists, there are three-point Calvinists, there are two-point Calvinists, there are those that don't believe in any of the points, I have trouble with four of them. And the fifth one, I, I don't know. And I'll explain that to you in just a moment. So the, the T in TULIP stands for total depravity. The passage that they use is Romans 3, 10 through 18. And it speaks about us being completely and totally lost. And I believe that we are totally depraved. I believe that you and I are completely and totally lost. That we are born with the sin nature. And because we're born with the sin nature, we can't reach up to God high enough. We can't do anything to save ourselves. And so that we are totally depraved. Now, when you talk to a, and here I'm going to give you another word now. You ready for this one? To a lapseptarian. That's someone who's extreme. He's, he's past double destination. Ho hopefully these terms will land sooner or later, or you guys will understand them now. But he's past double predestination guy. And they are going to say, of man, that man is incredibly awful and wicked no matter who he is. They're going to say the nicest person on earth is as evil and wicked as Hitler and deserves the same thing that Hitler deserves throughout all of eternity. I don't believe that. I believe that there are more wicked people and there are less wicked people. And I believe that the Bible teaches that. I also don't believe that every sin is the same. You'll hear some people say that every sin is the same. There is similarities in sin in that sin will separate you from God, but there are sins that are worse than other sins. And that becomes obvious. If I, if I lie to you, it's much better than if I murder you. Murdering you is a much more severe sin and will receive a much more severe judgment than if you lie to someone. Although I believe that we are totally depraved, there's nothing in us that we can be saved at all. I don't know that I agree with the Reformed or the extreme Calvinistic stance about the depravity of man. The U in TULIP is unconditional election. Now, this is an interesting one. It means that God chooses whom he chooses just because he chooses them. It's unconditional. He just chooses someone 
and he chooses someone to, for honor and he chooses another vessel for dishonor. And like he just goes around throughout history and chooses some for honor and some for dishonor. And I don't know that the Bible ever teaches this. I understand what Romans 9 says, but Romans 9 is talking about the nation of Israel and the church. In other words, when it says, if God chooses vessels for honor and dishonor, who are you to speak against God? If God chooses that people who would believe in him, and remember the context of Romans is Romans 10, anyone who calls out on his name will be saved. It's what Romans 10 says. Then if God chooses that those who believe in him will be saved, then God can do that. God is sovereign. And they'll say, well, the sovereignty of God is that he can randomly choose people without his foreknowledge. The Bible says whom God foreknew, he also determined. So why wouldn't God, through his foreknowledge, use whatever he had to be able to choose and reject people or set up whatever he wants to. He's God. If he wanted to set up a world where he just randomly chose people to give grace to, and that's why when you're talking to an extreme Calvinist, they'll talk about grace. They'll say, they'll talk about the grace of God because God just randomly chose somebody that was going to perish and going to suffer throughout eternity in hell, and he randomly chose them, and that's all grace because he randomly chose them. But I don't know that the Bible teaches that kind of randomness. So unconditional salvation, I, I would say I agree with it if unconditional salvation were I didn't have to have any kind of condition before Christ could come to me. I didn't have to be a good person. I like that. I, I like what, when I read unconditional salvation, I like the fact that anybody can be saved, but that's not what they mean by unconditional salvation or unconditional election. They believe that God is just randomly choosing people. The L stands for limited atonement. Limited atonement is that Jesus didn't die for everybody. He only died for the elect. That God knew who the elect were. And when Jesus died on the cross, he only died for the elect. He didn't waste any of his blood on people who would not receive him as Savior. And so he only died for the elect. This is one of the major problems that I have with Calvinism. I could kind of live with the first two. But this one, it's like they're saying that there are some of you here tonight who cannot be saved, no matter what you do because it is limited atonement. No, it, and you're not going to come to Christ because you haven't been chosen. If you were chosen, you would come to him, but it's limited atonement. And there are people that are chosen before the foundations of the world to be saved. When Ephesians says that we have been predestined by God before the foundations of the world, he's talking about the church, that the church has been predestined to do the work that God's called us to do. And anyone who believes can be a part of that church. But they say that it's limited atonement. Then there's the I, which is the opposite side of that. It's the flip coin of that. And that's irresistible grace. That there are some people that are chosen by God to be saved and they cannot be lost, no matter what you do. Now, I like that if I'm one of those that are chosen for irresistible grace so that a person could be doing whatever they're doing, but their irresistible grace are gonna be saved in the end because God knows who's gonna be saved and he knows who's gonna be limited. Then there's the P, which is perseverance of the saints. And this is the one that I say, I don't know. The perseverance of the saints. So it's the once saved, always saved idea. And so they say if someone has genuinely committed their lives to Christ, then they have been saved. They're once saved. They are always saved. And I go, maybe. But the thing is, the way that you show that you are genuinely saved is if you finish the race. He who endures to the end will be saved. And I point this out often that those who teach once saved, always saved will tell you if you walk away from Christ that that's evidence that you never really made a genuine commitment. 
So there's no one who says that you can come to Christ, walk away and live in the world. There'll be no devil worshipers in heaven just because they made a commitment to Christ when they were 12. They gave their lives to Christ when they were 12, but then they became devil worshipers. The extreme Calvinist is going to say it wasn't a genuine commitment at 12 years old. Someone else might say, well, they made a genuine commitment, but then they walked away and they made some other decisions that made some things happen into their lives. So they use a picture, the Calvinists will use a picture of monergenism and synergism. Monergism being one person. We know what synergism is, right? In business, you want synergy. You want cooperation between people. On a church staff, we want synergy. We want the staff working together to be able to be as effective to minister to the people of the church as we can. So monergism would be all God. God is the one that's involved in salvation. He's choosing that person. He's rejecting that person. You don't have any part of it. You are along for the ride. That's monergism. And I'm, I'm trying to represent it correctly. What I realize is that they wouldn't present it this way. They, they wouldn't say to you that you are, you're just along for the ride. But that's what they mean. I mean, if you're chosen to be lost, you're chosen to be lost. If you're chosen to be saved, you're chosen to be saved. Like I said, if you're chosen, that's good news for you. But if you're chosen to be lost, that's bad news for you. And this is their term as well. So then they say in synergy, if you're a synergist or in synergism, you are saying, I have a part in salvation. I'm working with God for my salvation. I don't like that as an explanation because I don't believe I'm working with God for my salvation. I don't think I have anything to offer God for my salvation. I can't jump high enough to be saved. I can't work hard enough to be saved. All I can do is receive the free gift of eternal life that is offered to me. And even though that is, that's a part that I play, it's a very tiny part. So if there is synergism happening because of my salvation, then he died on the cross. He chose me. He called me, right? No one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. So God drew me. He called me. He worked in my life. And then he reached down and he offered me something. And I received it. You go out and you pick out an anniversary for your wife. You go out and you pick out just a, an amazing gift for your wife. Something you know that, that you're, she's going to love. And then you give her the gift and she takes it from you. And you say, well, you, you had a part in that gift. You had a part in, in what I picked out. I don't know that we would say that. I don't know in any other analogy that we would say that that's some kind of works, which is what they will say when they talk about synergism. I prefer the term to be a, a historicist, just simply meaning that before Reformed theology came along, the church believed and taught that you had to receive Christ, that you had to give your life to him that you had to believe in him in order to be saved. And that's what the, the Bible teaches. And I find that if Calvinism were true, then God would have to be in some ways deceptive in, in the Bible because he says, whoever believes, let him come into me. But it doesn't really mean whoever. The Bible says in 1 Peter and in Titus, God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And if God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth and God is completely sovereign, then everybody would be saved. But God in his sovereignty decided that he wanted to make man with free will. This is what I believe, that he made man with free will. Men can make their choices. You can choose to live for yourself. You can choose to reject God or you can choose to live for him. I also think one of the problems that you have with lapsaptarianism, reformed theology, covenant theology, with all of those things, is that you end up making God do evil things because you have to say that God is determined. It's determinism. God, you know, I, I had a conversation years ago 
with my daughter's teacher who was teaching Calvinism to her. And um, he said something along the lines of, God has predetermined everything to happen. And I said, even child molestation. And he said, yes. And I said, well, I don't, I don't believe that. I believe God gave man free will and that men go out and do wicked things. And you could say that God knew about that beforehand and that creates some kind of a problem. But when you believe in determinism, you're putting God as being the one who said, hey, he's completely sovereign. Everything that happens because God wants it to happen. And then all of a sudden you're putting God into that. So I, I find problems with that. So when it comes to these warnings in the book of Hebrews, I think the book of Hebrews was written to the church. I think it was written to Jewish Christians who were going back into Judaism and were turning away from Christ. And whoever the author is wrote them to bring them back and gave warnings to us that are good warnings for us, that we stay true to the end. As we get into these warnings, we'll talk about this some, but I do believe that it's possible for someone to walk away from God. I believe that. I believe it's rare and I believe it's severe. And I believe that when it happens, the person will not want to come back. I think you cross a line that who knows where that line is, but I think the Bible teaches that. That's possible to do it. And, and no wonder then there would be such warnings against it if you can't come back after you've crossed that line. And you say, well, what if I've done that? We'll come back and you haven't done it. If you've crossed the line, you won't want to come back. Your person says, I don't want to come back at all. And so then you've crossed that line. So let's pick up this first warning then in Hebrews chapter two, in verse one, it says, therefore, we must give a more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Now, remember in the last chapter, he had made the point that Jesus is superior to the angels, that Jesus is, is higher up than the angels, that God called him God and that God gave him everything. And it says, therefore, because of whom Jesus is, let us therefore not neglect such a great salvation or give a more earnest heed to the things we have heard. What kind of things have we heard when it comes to salvation? Are we giving it that earnest heed? Lest we drift away. Now he uses this term of drifting. So sometimes people find themselves walking away from God, not because they made a decision to walk away, but because they are drifting. I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to walk away from God today from a really close position to Christ to walking away. There's some drifting process that happens. And the thing about drifting is you don't really notice that you're drifting. You're, you're on the water and you're just kind of drifting away and you don't notice it. When I was a kid, I went to Elephant Butte. I lived in Albuquerque, went to Elephant Butte, got on a raft, didn't put enough sunscreen on, fell asleep, drifted out into the middle of the lake where you know, some boat went whipping by uh, with a skier on it. I had no idea I drifted into the middle of the lake. I just woke up and was like, oh, I need to get back to shore now. That's what happens to us when we drift. We don't notice that we're drifting. That's why we have to give a more earnest heed to the things we have, have heard so that we don't drift away. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse -verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. 
For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to dig deeper in your walk with God? Then you are a great fit for REACH College with enrollment opportunities. To attend as a student or an auditor, the courses challenge you to analyze your way of thinking as you grow in your walk with Jesus. Find out more at thereachcollege.org. That is thereachcollege.org.